Raised Green is a seven-episode podcast series exploring the climate crisis through the minds of local leaders and global experts. Short, accessible conversations explore new ways of working together via personal stories about creating a healthy, just, and sustainable future. As economic disparity, environmental degradation, and social injustices continue to emerge as the defining issues of the 21st century, we need solutions that scale faster than the pace of the problems. These conversations ask how. Welcome to Raise Green with Matt Maroney and Franz Hochstrasser. Hey Franz, how you doing today? What's on your mind, man? Oh, pretty good. Uh, but the whole world does kind of feel like it's upside down. We got we got a global pandemic. We got mass unemployment and economic shocks. Um, but it all has me thinking a lot about the global climate change politics and interplay of geopolitical forces. Huh, yeah. I think everyone would agree it's a catalytic time in history and we're all experiencing it in, in different ways. And it reminds me of something my friend Suvenia said, environmentalism isn't only what we do individually, but it is about what corporations and governments agree to do as well. Yeah, I mean, in a time like today, the frameworks that underlie society seem so much more important. Uh, we're incredibly fortunate to be joined by Sue. She is an eminent force in international climate negotiations and has been for the last decade uh, plus, actually a couple decades now. Uh, so for more than 25 years, Sue Binia has served as the lead climate lawyer for the U.S. State Department. And in that capacity, she played a central role in the negotiation of all the major climate agreements, including the Paris Agreement. She was also a deputy legal advisor, and in that capacity covered U.S. treaty practice, the law of the sea, Somali piracy, Latin America, human rights, criminal law, and other environmental issues. <laughs> that just sure sounds like a lot, but Sue is without a doubt experienced in unpacking these parts of the equations. I can't wait to talk to her, so let's get her on the line. All right. Well, we'll call her in just a sec. Before we get into that, though, uh, we wanted to give a little primer uh, because there are so, so many big moments in terms of global environmental policy frameworks um, to fill you in on. And the details that Sue goes through um, are, are very in-depth. And so we wanted to give a quick whirlwind guide for things that will pop up in our conversation. Let's start with the Rio Earth Summit. In the late 1980s, climate science was beginning to become popularized by Jane Hansen testifying to the U.S. House of Representatives, among other events, and the U.N. organized the Earth Summit in 1992 as the culmination to get country leaders to focus on sustainability issues. The Earth Summit resulted in the following documents, Rio Declaration on Environment and Development, Agenda 21, and Forest Principles. Moreover, there were important legally binding agreements in the Rio Convention that were open for signature, the Convention on Biological Diversity, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, and the UN Convention to Combat Desertification. Yeah, it was a huge summit. And this episode that we're going to talk through with Sue here focuses on the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, or as we lovingly call it, the UNFCCC. Uh, so after the Rio summit, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, often called the, just the convention, entered into force and has been running an annual meeting called the COP. 
the COP, or Conference of Parties, was kicked off in 1995 and has met annually ever since with a couple of minor exemptions. One exception, actually, is this year, COP26, which was supposed to be in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, this December, December 2020, and is now postponed to next year. The UNFCCC, or the convention, differentiated and bifurcated countries of the world into two so-called annexes, often thought of as developed and developing countries. So you'll also hear some discussion of this in our conversation. In addition, you'll hear some discussion about the Kyoto Protocol, which was building on the convention and was the first major global framework for emissions reductions that was agreed to in 1997, named after the ancient capital city of Japan. And this was a top-down agreement, meaning that it defined targets for emissions reductions from each country. But it was not ratified by the U.S., and it only ever accounted for about a third of global emissions. So we'll continue describing definitions for some more terms in the intro to the next episode. But without further ado, let's welcome Sue. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you again, Sue, for joining us. And, um, you know, you've... You've been at the heart of the U.S. climate negotiations as part of the State Department's uh, legal advisory team since really the inception of the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change. And that was such an influential moment in time. What was one of the most memorable dynamics going on back in the lead up to the Rio Earth Summit back in the early 90s? Can you share a story with us or let us know some of the key ingredients to getting that done? Yeah, sure. Um, it's interesting because some of the issues back then, you know, are, are still <laughs> live issues. You know, we didn't know it at the time, but they've been kind of the persistent issues throughout the history of the, of the climate regime. So I'll, I'll not mention two of them, if I, if I may. Um, one was kind of the issue of like legal bindingness, right? We were, the framework convention was supposed to be a, legal instrument. Um, but the issue was whether the emissions target, uh, which was only going to apply, you know, at the time to the developed countries, the Annex One parties. Should it be legally binding or not? And um, President Bush, the father, kind of staked everything on it not being legally binding and basically said, um, I'm not going to attend the Rio Earth Summit if it is binding and just kind of stuck to that. So, um, you know, I guess the U.S. used that leverage um, to get its way. Uh, but the way that that worked out was, you know, um, kind of set the stage for many of the ways in which we worked out issues in the climate negotiations, which is like you later revisit something, um, right? So one side kind of wins the battle one day, but then you put in a provision that says, but we're going to return to this issue. And that's what happened on this legal bindingness issue. So the framework convention's uh, emissions target is is an aim. It's not legally binding. So basically the U.S. won that one at the time. But the Framework Convention also says the very first time the parties meet, you know, at, at the first COP, they will kind of revisit the issue of whether that whole section of the convention is adequate, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they decided at the time uh, later, I guess, that it was not adequate, and you ended up with the Kyoto Protocol where the, the targets were legally binding. Issue number two, I guess, would be, which you'll recognize from kind of subsequent negotiations, was should all parties have the same commitments, or should there be 
different categories of countries, and if so, like what should the categories be? So that was a big discussion point during the negotiation of the Framework Convention, and you ended up with many, many different categories. You end up with like the Annex One parties, which were kind of OECD at the time, plus Russia and Eastern Europe. You ended up with Annex Two, which was all of those Annex Ones minus Eastern Europe, because that was for funding commitments, and it didn't seem fair that you know, Eastern Europe and Russia, which had just kind of collapsed, should have funding obligations. The Eastern European countries also were considered economies in transition, so they had a different baseline in terms of the emissions aim. It didn't seem fair that 1990 should be their baseline for emissions because, you know, their emissions had dropped so precipitously. Around then, you had the small island developing states, least developed countries, oil producing countries. So, you know, you really had just a million different categories, which is what was so striking about the Kyoto Protocol is like the negotiations then reduced just to basically two categories, Annex 1 and non-Annex 1. It's kind of one of the reasons like the U.S. walked away from that agreement is it, it, it like took the many, the, the much more nuanced approach in the Framework Convention and sort of made it bifurcated. So anyway, so those issues of bindingness and differentiation, I think, were two of the main issues in the Development Framework Convention, and, you know, those have been with us since then. <laughs> with, with us, indeed, all the way through Paris and... And beyond. Sometimes, <laughs> beyond. Wow, yeah. So... The history of the negotiations has been so fascinating to watch and then to, to kind of join and be, be a part of. And over the lifetime of um, the Framework Convention, yeah, I'm sure you've seen so many delegations come and go um, and, and encountered so many negotiators along the way, um, and, and particularly as, as part of the U.S. team. Um, I myself um, watched you teach and uh, and share so many of your your lessons uh, with our negotiating team at, at the State Department, um, and I, I'm sure that you've shared similar lessons with with other great negotiators to help them hone their craft. Um, so I'm I'm curious um, if you would be willing to uh, share some of the top tips for folks, whether they're negotiating a, a salary for a new job or um, the next International Climate Accord, what are some of the things that you kind of keep in mind as you're navigating that space? Well, I don't want to speak to negotiating salary because it turns out I'm like really bad at that kind of negotiation where I'm going to go representing myself. I'm much happier representing, you know, someone else or a country. So let me name four things that I try to keep in mind. I'm sure the list, you know, could be a lot, a lot longer. But I guess first would be, you know, be very prepared before going into a negotiation. You need to know other countries' positions before you start, um, both to prepare yourself and what you're going to say, but also just like as a sign of respect that you've actually taken the time to uh, get to know the other countries' positions. And part of being prepared is also thinking about your own position and whether there are other ways to reflect it, which doesn't necessarily mean like you're going to cave or come up with your fallback positions in round one. But, um, you know, over the course of a negotiation, you have to start thinking about, well, what if we can't get exactly what we want? Maybe there's another way to, you know, stick to our, the substance, but change the words. Usually there's many or more than one way, in fact, many ways 
to uh, say what you need. It doesn't have to just be one way. Or you might need to actually change the substance of your, your position. So you're, you're always thinking about fallbacks along the way. So that's preparation. Second one is I usually tell students, in, in fact, day one of class, to ask a lot of questions when you, um, when you start a negotiation with, with one or more other countries. Often you're in a position at the very beginning of a negotiation where you know, you're basically advocating for X and the other country may be advocating for you know, the opposite of X, not X. And if you just went home with that information, there'd be no way to solve the problem. So you really have to dig in and ask, you know, do you hate X, our proposal, because of the substance of it or is it the optics of it? If it's the substance of it, that's a different story. If it's the optics, there may be ways to change the words, change the placement, um, you know, throw something else in uh, to address the issue. If it's substance, that's going to be kind of a different discussion and negotiation. So asking lots of questions, I think, is, is pretty key. The third, I guess, I tell people when they're advocating, so when you're, you know, actually in the negotiations <clears throat> as opposed to preparing, it's important to be clear and concise. And I usually tell people, which has become a kind of a running joke, that you should always start off by saying how many points you're going to make. Because I've always noticed that other countries and, you know, generally people in the room pay more attention if you start off by saying, you know, I have three reasons why I support this rather than that. People generally like pick up their pen or start typing. So I always think it's kind of unfortunate when someone has a great position or great points to make, but then kind of ramble a bit, because uh, I think people don't really pay as much attention um, as when someone gives a very, a very uh, kind of succinct, um, orderly presentation. And then the fourth one, if possible, it's great to be able to tell another country why your proposal is in their interest. So not just saying, like, we support or demand X position, you know, and you, and you should accept it. But to say, like, here's why our position or proposal is actually in the interest of your country. Um, because, uh, you know, that's much more likely to be successful, actually, than just kind of dictating your uh, position to the other side. So I would, I would just, you know, say those four have been at least helpful to me, and I would recommend them. <laughs> that was very insightful, both for, I think, international and also for personal and professional as well. Thank you for sharing those tips. With the current administration set to formally pull itself out of the Paris Agreement the day after Election Day, how would the next administration actually put itself back into the Paris Agreement? Well, you're right that the Trump administration put in its uh, notification of withdrawing. So it's the U.S. will be out of Paris on November 4th, the day after Election Day, coincidentally. Um, so a new administration could rejoin as early as like day one of the new administration, so in late January. It's not the kind of agreement that needs to go to the Senate as a treaty, so you don't really need kind of extra time for uh, domestic approval. You can just hand in the instrument, you know, right away. But that's the easy part, I would say, because then the U.S. has to essentially get its house in order in terms of designing 
its next emissions target, right? So that the Paris Agreement requires each party to have in place at all times to maintain, as they say, a nationally determined contribution. So you don't negotiate your emissions target with other countries. It's not like the Kyoto Protocol where, you know, your target is negotiated and kind of written into the agreement. Under Paris, each country designs its own contribution, as, as we call it. And the U.S. had a target, a 2025 target, or has one right now, but once it withdraws from Paris, that target will kind of slip off the table. So when the U.S. rejoins the agreement, it's going to have to have some kind of contribution, or NDC for short. You know, it has to submit one. So that raises two issues. One is a timing issue, and one is a substance issue. The timing issue is that if the United States rejoins, technically it's supposed to have an NDC at least, you know, 30 days later when it becomes a party again. It should have one on the table. But probably it's not going to have had the time or the chance to develop an NDC. You know, it will just be getting its its people into positions. It probably will want to do some domestic consultation with you know, the public, with Congress, with, with states, maybe cities, um, and maybe some international consultation as well. So, you know, it's going to have to come up with something to put in there uh, as a maybe as a placeholder uh, you know, early on. So, it, you know, it has many options. <clears throat> they could um, repeat the 2025 target as a kind of a placeholder. They could put in some kind of 2030 <clears throat> placeholder, um, you know, pending the development of the final target. So anyway, that's that's not that complicated, but people will have to think it through. I think the more challenging aspect of the next NDC is going to be the substance of it, right? Because the U.S. is kind of behind, in a way, uh, due to the current administration's uh, rollback of various uh, climate policies. <clears throat> and a new administration is going to come in wanting to be, you know, ambitious and a leader on climate. So you're going to have this potentially a kind of a conflict of sorts between wanting to be ambitious, show leadership, uh, and all of that, and that would indicate some kind of pretty stringent <clears throat> emissions target. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the United States is going to want to be very credible, right, because it's going to be kind of digging itself out of a credibility hole, having walked away from the Paris Agreement, so shouldn't be presumably committing itself to something that, it, you know, obviously cannot fulfill. So, you know, somebody's going to have to figure out, like, the right balance between those two objectives. And I guess beyond getting its own house in order and getting its NDC submitted, presumably a new administration would want to use its its leadership to try to get other countries to step up their ambition. Now, whether that takes the form of bilateral interaction, potentially with, with China, although that may be complicated given the, the state of relations, you know, or whether the new administration decides to revive the major economies forum, which played a very big role on, in the, on the road to Paris, you know, will have to be decided. But presumably the point is beyond just getting its own commitments in order, the U.S. will want to use its whatever kind of power and influence it has to get other countries to, to step up. Indeed, yeah. Um, very, uh, very, very fascinating dynamic uh, that, that's going to play out on the 
international space um, if indeed there is a, a new administration come November. Um, and and all of that, of course, now um, is also in an additional sort of layer of uncertainty or under an additional layer of uncertainty with uh, the COVID uh, pandemic globally um, having uh, caused the UN Framework Convention Secretariat to push back the dates for COP26. Um, they recently announced that they're now going to hold them in November of 2021, uh, which changes that, that dynamic considerably yet again, uh, <laughs> making the, the sand beneath our feet even, even less firm in a way. Wow, that was a lot to handle. Uh, let, 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 let's unpack it a bit and, and take a breath. So on the road to Paris and afterwards, over the last five years, all nations of the world have adopted the Paris Agreement. Every country has formally joined it and have entered it into force. So they have submitted targets and report against those targets. And in 2018, the parties also agreed to and adopted the Catalyst Rulebook, named after the city in Poland where COP24 was held. That rulebook lays the groundwork for nearly every article, which is what the UNFCCC refers to as a section of the agreement. Matt said nearly every article because there is one article that's not finalized um, and that wasn't part of the Katowice rulebook, and it's the rules on markets. Uh, the governance and mechanisms around the sale and transfer of what the Paris Agreement calls internationally transferable mitigation outcomes is what the content of the markets article is. And the idea is that if carbon reductions are done in one country, that they could be sold or transferred to another country. Um, and this is, is and remains hotly debated as a topic in the international climate sphere. Anyhow, our discussion with Sue was going so well that we went along and broke up the episode into two pieces. Um, so please tune in to part B of this episode to, con to continue the conversation with Sue.